0: Hello, this is Kelly McGee, and it is September the 21st, 2020, and we're on the Archon Invasion, the Origin of the Nephilim. Now, I'm wondering if I'm reading the title, and it says Archon Invasion, the Origin of the Nephilim. Now, when the Nephilim died, they could rise in spirit and take a host as a body, but I'm not sure who the Nephilim are, still. So we're gonna go and do part two.
1: Dictionary of Scripture Proper Names. All it does is give you the names that are you find in Scripture and the Hebrew definition of what the names mean. We know that their names have meaning. Like Abraham, right? He's what's his, what's Abraham's name mean? Father of the father of many nations. You know, we've heard that. So when Abraham walked up to and introduced himself, basically what he was saying is, Hi, I'm the father of many nations. His name had a meaning, right? Uh, so this is a book about the names and the meanings that they have. Well, Dr. Chuck Missler looked at the ten p- patriarchs prior to the flood and looked at the definition of their names and realized, wow, this actually spells out a a little paragraph here that actually tells God's whole plan for humanity. (laughs) Amazing. In the names of the patriarchs. You see the names right there in the column, what each person's name means. Putting it in a sentence, Dr. Chuck Missler writes, Man is appointed mortal sorrow, but the blessed God shall come down teaching that his death shall bring the despairing rest. There's the gospel salvation message right there in the names of the pre-flood patriarchs. Wow. Well, I started look at that, uh, look into that a little bit deeper. Why is Jared's name shall come down? Well, because the synchronized extra biblical text will will testify to the fact that that's when the Watchers came down in Genesis chapter six. They came down in the days of Jared. They descended, and so here's here's this guy's name is shall descend. Enoch was a teacher of righteousness. Well, his name he taught against the Watchers. That's what the whole book of Enoch is about. And teaching against the, the activity of the watchers. Methuselah, Enoch's son, uh, Enoch got revelation that God was going to destroy the world, and it would happen at the end of his son's life. And so his son is named, his death shall bring, and the connotation is judgment. So with and sure enough, seven days after Methuselah's death, the flood waters came. Lamech was named despairing because he was born during the time period of the first generation Nephilim. That would certainly make sense. If you look at all the corruption, the violence, and all the horrors that's going around, you would be despairing. He named his son despairing. But then what happens? All the stuff that I showed you, the 500 uh, years ended, the first generation Nephilim were gone, the watchers were buried, all of that was done away with, and then Lamech names his son (sighs) rest. Noah was born after the first generation. Situation. Let's look at it as a picture. Look at all the chaos that took place in the beginning there. Look at when it came to the end. You could see Noah was named rest because there was an end of that corruption. And there was a period of peace for a little while until you get to the last 120 years. The reason I focus on the last 120 years is because I believe that's what God is saying when he said, my spirit would no longer dwell with man for his days shall be 120 years. I believe that was when God was saying, okay, you better stop doing what you're doing. I'm going to give you some time to repent. And clearly they didn't, and things got worse and worse and worse until Genesis 6.12 manifested all flesh becoming corrupted. That's what I believe is happening there. Changing man's nature. This is a little nugget just recently read in Jubilees chapter 5. And their fathers, the watchers, were witnesses of their, their the first generation of Nephilim destruction. And after this, they were bound in the depths of the earth forever until the day of the great condemnation when judgment is executed on all those who have corrupted their ways and their works before the Lord. And he destroyed all from their places, and there was not left one of them whom he judged not according to all their wickedness. And he made for all his works a new and righteous nature. So that they should not sin in their whole nature forever, but should be all righteous, each in his kind always. Could this have been a preventative measure to prevent or to ensure that angels and humans could no longer breed via sex? I think so. And the um, translator of this particular edition of Jubilees, uh, Joseph B. Lumpkin, has a little footnote on this. He says... As far as this author is aware, the recreation of man's nature is mentioned in no other book. This idea of human nature being altered as it existed before the flood is found nowhere else but in jubilees. And I would disagree with him because as I looked at that, I thought, okay, remember what I said? I need two witnesses before I can hang a truth on it. I looked at what he he had to say right there, and I looked at that verse, and immediately Daniel 2.43 jumped into my head. And I'm just throwing this out there. Maybe this is confirmation of this idea that, that God changed man's nature such that angels and humans couldn't mate anymore. That there was a barrier put in place. Maybe that's why plan B had to be instituted. Just putting it out there. Daniel 2.43. And whereas thou saw iron mixed with miry clay, they shall mingle themselves with the seed of men. Who's they? Who's this they mingling with men? The seed of men. But they shall not cleave one to another, even as iron is not mixed with clay. Cleave is a marriage term. For two coming together and becoming one. We see that many times in scripture. Multiple confirmations of that. So I'm just throwing it out there. I'm thinking Daniel 2.43 may be a confirmation of what this is saying in Jubilees chapter 5. The days of Jared versus the days of Noah. Because what did Jesus say? As it was in the days of Noah. The days of Jared were marked by the mating of angels and humans. Whereas, however, it was in the days of Noah that the creation of animal human hybrids brought about the corruption of all flesh we read about in Genesis 6:12 which ultimately led to God's judgment with the flood. So if I were to take Jesus's words in Matthew 24:37 quite literally, all we need to do is turn on the evening news. Hmm. There we're seeing a repeat not of angels mating with humans as in the days of Jared, but rather the recreation of animal human hybrids exactly as it was in the days of Noah. There's a couple of books that recently came out by Douglas Hamp and Tom Anita Horn. And I just found it kind of poetic as I was putting this presentation together. Just put these two books side by side. I believe the corrupting of the image of God. God created man in what? His own image, right? When we corrupt that image, we are opening forbidden gates. And that's what these two books are about. Corrupting the image and opening up forbidden gates. That's what was taking place in the pre-flood world. Who or what are Nephilim? I think we need to define the Nephilim. We've been talking a lot about them. Strong's number 5303 defines uh, them as Nephil. Now, Nephilim, when you add the IM, some of you are taking Hebrew classes uh, with Sheila and I. We were taking Hebrew classes. We learned that the suffix IM is what? Plural. So, this is the plural form. Uh, it comes from the word Nephal. Properly, uh, uh, Nephilim would be defined as a feller, i.e., a bully. Or tyrant, a giant. Do you see anything in that definition that says exclusively a Nephilim is the offspring of angels made with humans? No. He's a bully. He's a tyrant. He comes from the word Nephal. He's a plural form of Nephal. Well, what does Nephal mean? Nephal is strong as number 5307. Has a, a, a number of meanings. Some of them are cast down, cease, die, divide by lot, let fail, to fall. That's the one everybody likes to focus on, to fall. But it's got a lot of meanings. A uh, Fugitive, inferior, be judged, perish, rot, slay, smite out, throw down. This word is actually used 435 times in the Bible.
0: Hmm.
1: Only very few of those times is it in reference to the offspring of angels and humans. So I would submit that I think we need to have a broader idea of, of what a Nephilim is. There's nothing in the the word itself that defines it exclusively as the offspring of angels made with humans. So with that premise, I started thinking, well, if I can think of this in broader terms, let's think of some of the possibilities. Here are some of the other uses for that word nephal in scripture. The first time is in Genesis 2.21, where God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam when he created Eve. So what is that? Did did Adam become a Nephilim? No. No. It's just simply the word to fall. Okay, in Numbers 5:21 it says, When the Lord doth make thy thigh to rot, the phrase to rot, that comes from the fall, and thy belly to swell. In Numbers 6:12, But the days that are, were before shall be lost. Same word, nephal, because the separation was defiled. In short, a nephal, im is essentially one who falls, rots, and shall be lost, <laughs> according to this. I would just say it's something that has fallen or is less than what God originally created it to be. God created us in His image, perfect. When we start corrupting that, you got in the fall. You got a Nephilim, something that is corrupted. So derived from the word Nefall, Nephilim, Nephilim are often said to be fallen ones, but we, just know, we just, I just showed you there's a broader way to look at that. Some associate the Nephilim with being the fallen angels themselves based on that one definition of to fall. Uh, I say not so because Genesis 6 says that the Nephilim were the offspring of the fallen angels. So I don't believe the Nephilim are the fallen angels. Put more simply, Nephilim can be defined as those who are fallen from their original state the way God created them to be. Which brings up a question. Can Nephilim be produced in other ways besides being the offspring of angels? Obviously, I think the answer is yes. Based on there, the yeah. variety of meanings for the word itself, but mm-hmm. also based on the story that is evolving that is coming about, uh, coming to light as we look at all these texts combined together. Mm-hmm. I believe that there are other ways to create Nephilim. So, let's consider this. Created in whose image? We were created in the image of God, right? Genesis 1, 27. So, God created man in his own image. In the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. We are created in the image of God. I credit this uh, insight to my wife, what I'm about to show you, about the possibility that the angels may have been trying to create something in their image. There's a variety of angels Described in the Bible. You got cherubim and seraphim and archangels and watchers. There's all kinds of different classes of angels apparently in heaven. You got one class of angel described in Ezekiel 1 5 through 10, where it describes a heavenly being saying that it had a likeness of a man. So here's this, this angelic being that looks like a man, but the sole of their feet was like the sole of a calf's foot. Well, wait a minute. Now all of a sudden you got a picture in your head of a, a satyr, something that's got part man, but has got hooves on the bottom. Uh, It describes that this individual, these creatures, had uh, the hands of a man under wings. So now we know this thing has wings. And then it goes on to say that its head has four faces. It has the face of a man, the face of a lion, the face of an ox, and the face of an eagle. This is an animal-human hybrid coming out of heaven. But this is something God created. This This is a class of angel, whatever kind of being this is god created this this is the wheel within the wheel story where these beings come down so if this is what some of the angels may look like could it be that they were trying to recreate themselves create something in their image in their likeness which is why they're mixing animals and humans together uh just think about the implications of that now would that create a host body that fits their angel human hybrid demonic spirits to enter i I think the answer is yes there's a movie that recently came out called splice i don't recommend you see it it's a very disturbing movie you'll just don't trust me don't go see it very disturbing movie but sometimes i like seeing the special features even more than the movie itself and uh the only reason i looked at this movie is because of the research that i'm doing um the special features had a documentary where the director is talking about what their idea was behind this creature that they call Dren. Dren is the name of the animal-human hybrid that they create. Listen to what he has to say and to what their their goal was when they were creating Dren. Listen to what he has to say. What they were trying to do with the creation of Dren.
0: Heart right, rate
2: Splice is about uh, two young, brilliant scientists, played by Adrian Brody and Sarah Pauli, And uh, what they do is create hybrid organisms by splicing DNA from different species for a large pharmaceutical company. But they're young and they're ambitious. And what they really want to do is add human DNA to the mix. But the company objects to this, so they do it in secret. And then terrible, terrible things result. You can't let her out. Specimens need to be contained. Don't call her that. Part of the excitement of watching this film is not knowing what Dren will ultimately become, because she evolves in her life cycle. She evolves in a very radical way, and uh, and she actually begins as as something quite ugly, a, a creature or a child that only a mother could love. But as she grows, she turns into something quite beautiful, something that is possibly a step up on the evolutionary ladder. I always thought of Dren as a genetically engineered angel, so mm-hmm. so she was always going to have a kind of. Bird component to her, and she was always intended to have wings, and there was always going to be something delicate and beautiful about her, and something, you know, maybe that's more beautiful than a human being. There is a sexual component to this story. There's a sexual component to the relationship between the scientists and the creature that's about as Freudian as you can get. You crossed the line. What did you expect when you made it? Didn't you have a plan? The prime directive of any life form is to procreate, and when you create something like Dren, that's an aspect of her being that you're going to have to address and I think what's so wonderful about the horror genre is that it gives you license to go to places that you could never comfortably go with a normal film become unstable this is the disaster everyone warns about a new species set loose in the world I mean this film on some level is about on many, on many levels is about evolution. It's about how Drem grows up. In some respect, it's about how we as a species are growing up or evolving. And I'm almost certain that given what's going on with this technology, that we are going to play a hand in our own evolution.
1: Do you hear what he said? We're trying to create a genetically engineered angel. How interesting. That even in the secular world, that there's a concept of what what I'm talking about here. Could it be that these writers who are making these horrific films are actually channeling some of the things the fallen angels are, may want them to portray? Could be. I find it interesting in this movie what he's, what he's, he's talked about how this creature develops it starts off they they create an animal human hybrid it starts off as a very alien looking creature in the beginning it begins to morph into sort of a baby looking creature toddler adolescent eventually uh, an adult female they try to make her look really sexy but by the end of the movie she morphs into a he becomes a male genetically engineered angel and they say right off the bat our goal was to create an angel a genetically engineered angel Just putting it out there, I think that's exactly what was going on in the pre-flood world prior to the days of of the flood right here in the latter-day corruption of all flesh. That's what I think happened with the pre-flood return of the Nephilim. Now let's transition into the post-flood return of the Nephilim. When you look at the post-flood world, boy, this is Lord of the Rings territory. This is Narnia. This is all the fantasy films that we've seen with the crazy giants and incredible battles and stuff. This stuff really happened. As I started looking at the scriptures, man, we're not taught this in Sunday school. We're not taught this in church. But when you, like I said, you plug in the Nephilim equation into this whole thing and you take the scriptures literally and stop trying to make it all an allegory, a metaphor, symbolic. Wow, there's a lot of stuff going on there. So you see what I've already depicted in the latter half. This is part of a chart that I'm creating. Uh, you see at the top I have two, day two and three. Remember where scripture says that uh, a day with the Lord is 1,000 years and 1,000 years is a day? I went with that premise to create a chart. Uh, so at the bottom there you see 2,000 and 3,000, and there's another part of that for day one. And so I'm building a seven-day chart for 7,000 years of human history. And I'm uh, trying to fill in all the blanks of the stuff that I see going on in Scripture in a visual format. This is day two and three. So you got the, the, the latter part of day two is where you, you have the corruption of all flesh. You have the flood. And then roughly 100, 150 years after the flood, you have the creation of the Tower of Babel uh, and that whole deal. Nimrod's born. But you see you got this giant right there. Uh, it's right, his foot standing on the flood. That's uh, right after the flood. I would depict him as uh, Amorius, the, the father of the Amorites, son of Canaan. And after that, he's got sons, Arba, Anak. uh, The giants start to fill up the land. The Israelites are going in there, and they're fighting wars against giants. I mean, this is Lord of the Rings cool stuff. You want to get your teenager excited about the scriptures? There it is. And it's real. So uh, as I started to look at instances uh, that may be pointing towards post-flood Nephilim, I found a few of these that that, uh, I'm going to highlight here for you. Post-flood accounts of Arphaxad's son, Canaan. We'll start with him. Arphaxad was one of the sons of Shem. Uh, I found this nugget in Jubilees 8, verses 1 through 5. In the 29th Jubilee, in the first week, in the beginning thereof, Arphaxad, who is Shem's son, took to himself a wife, and her name was Rasuija, something like that, the daughter of Susan, the daughter of Shem's son, Elam. And she bare him a son in the third year in this week, and he called his name Canaan. And the son grew, and his father, Arphaxad said, taught him writing. And he went to seek for himself a place where he might seize for himself a city. And there he found a writing which former generations had carved on the rock. And he read what was thereon. And he translated it and sinned owing to it, for it contained the teaching of the watchers. So here we have Shem's son uh, producing a son. He teaches him how to read and write, and he goes out to go build a city. And while he's out there, he finds some writing from the pre-flood world that was apparently written or contained the knowledge of the watchers. And he did whatever it had to say, apparently. And uh, he says there at the bottom, uh, and he wrote it down and said nothing regarding it, for he was afraid to speak to Noah about it, lest he should be angry with him on account of it. (laughs) Yeah, you think Noah would be a little bit upset? What are you doing? We just came off this boat thing, remember? It wasn't that long ago. Ooh. So here we got this very peculiar situation happening there. Now, I will say this about this particular character, Canaan, is uh, we don't find him in the lineage of Genesis 10. So I, I don't know what to do with it. Either throw Jubilees out and say it's garbage, or maybe Jubilees is giving you the reason why he was excluded from uh, the, the uh, patriarchs there in Genesis 10. Just throwing it out there. It's just a story that I found. Take it for whatever you think it's worth. Canaan. Now, of course, we do read a lot about him and his descendants in the scriptures. Canaan, his lineage is given in Genesis 10, verses 15 through 19. These are the ites, all the different ites that the the children of Israel constantly had to deal with. And by that, I mean kill. This is where God says, Go into that village, go into that city, kill the women and children, the animals, the men, kill everything. These guys. Mizraim, he has a uh, son named Kaftor, and that's given in Genesis chapter 10, verses 13 and 14, who settled the island of Crete and was the father of the Philistines. And uh, confirming witnesses for that are Jeremiah 47.4 and Amos 9.7, identifies Kaftor as the father of the Philistines. We know of some giants with uh, that came from that group of people, don't we? Goliath and his brothers, right? We also know... Uh, by reading history and reading some of the mythologies of other cultures that really all of Greek mythology came from this place so could it be that the Greek gods the myth of the Greek gods are actually all based on the offspring of this individual here the evidence seems to suggest so Cush he married his daughter Semiramis so at some point his wife gave birth to Semiramis and then he later married her and that union produced Nimrod, whom he named, this is interesting, hey, let's name our son, we shall rebel. What do you think? <laughs> he named his son the rebellious one. He just he, he didn't have time to rebel, he was just born. He names the kid <laughs> the rebellious one. Well, what, what do you do with that? <laughs> right? And scripture tells us that Nimrod began to be a mighty one in the earth. That's that word Geborim again. Gabor, He began to be a Gabor. Now, we can look at that and say, well, Nimrod simply became a strong and powerful man. He just became a, a tough guy. Or we could say that Nimrod began to become a giant himself. Or we could say Nimrod began to become a hunter of giants when you look at that text. I would suggest that you could take all three to be true. I believe all three of those are true. The Septuagint just kind of clarifies it all for you. And I lean towards the Septuagint's version of this because this is a lot closer to the original source material. I mean, if you look at when the Septuagint was written, this was written by Hebrews who spoke and read Greek. They had the original subject matter. They are a lot closer to the original subject matter than King Jimmy's boys were. A lot closer. And so they said right off the bat, he began to be a giant. (laughs) So I'm going to go with that. Okay. I think scripture testifies that Nimrod became a giant. Uh, and that is confirmed by numerous other sources when you get outside and, and look at the cultures of other people. And, and I talk about that extensively in some of my other materials uh, in the back there. This is from an episode of Fringe, just fairly recent episode. I, 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 my wife and I enjoy Fringe. Uh, listen to what they say. that They're, this, they're analyzing the body of an animal-human hybrid. That they discovered they found an animal human hybrid and they're checking out and uh listen to what they have to say but think about nimrod because it says that he began to be a gaborim and i believe the context there for gaborim is giant so he began to be a nephilim or an offspring of the nephilim a gaborim he began to be a giant i'm thinking this episode of fringe just tells you how that may have happened so with that in mind see these they track marks we think he was injecting himself with whatever that stuff is what's that Like a tattoo. Hey, Walter, Hmm? can you come here for a sec? Take a look at this? Okay, well, if
0: Conrad's not behind this, who is? Perhaps the Sumerians. This tattoo is cuneiform. I'm not sure of the significance of the symbol, but I'm fairly certain
1: it's Sumerian. Yep, I was right. Here it is. I remember reading it means renewal or rebirth. There's been some rumblings lately about a group out there. A cult, really? As far as I can see, they're just whack jobs. They're obsessed with the guided evolution of man. They want to create a new species. A better species. Mutation by design.
0: This should be the last one. Just think how special you're going to be. How special we're both going to be. (laughs)
1: Using Retroviral DNA They're rewriting people's Genome And they're talking about The Sumerians there And the Assyrians And all that stuff What what, Nimrod That fits Nimrod doesn't it He's an Assyrian Right Sumerian culture All that mythology and stuff I talk a lot more About Nimrod uh, Becoming uh, Gaborim Nimrod began to be and, and these materials right here of course my whole Babylon Rising series there and book DVD and uh, audiobook as well as th- my DVD the um, mythology and the coming great deception I, I give a lot more detail there so I'm not going to go into it here but I think that fringe episode may help us understand what may have happened in the post flood world maybe even with Canaan as well maybe that's what discovered, discovered whatever that writing was on the rock how to do some of these things. I don't know, just putting it out there. But with regard to Nimrod being a giant and also a hunter of giants, as I started looking to look into Baalbek, uh, I found some things that would confirm that notion, I believe. I it was boring, Again, looking for more than one witness. The history of Baalbek reaches back, uh, Baalbek is like in Lebanon. Mm-hmm. region there the history of Baalbek reaches back approximately 5,000 years excavations beneath the great court of the Temple of Jupiter have uncovered traces of settlements dating to the Middle Bronze Age 1900 to 1600 BC built on top of an older level of human habitation dating to the early Bronze Age 2900 to 2300 BC which makes it roughly contemporary to the Tower of Babel the Baalbek was built about the same time or shortly thereafter uh the time of the Tower of Babel. And I found this quote from an individual by the name of Michael Alouf, page 41 of his book, History of Baalbek. He says, after the flood, when Nimrod reigned over Lebanon, he sent giants to rebuild the fortress of Baalbek, which was so named in honor of Baal, the god of the Moabites, and worshipers of the sun. See that stone right there? That thing's huge. You can see the size comparison with the guy that's standing there that's roughly a six foot tall man standing on the end of that stone right there now uh, modern historians and archaeologists will look at that and scratch their head and go uh, we don't have any clue how in the world did somebody quarry that rock how did they carve that rock how did they move that rock nobody can understand that when you're trying to look at it with that frame of mind six foot tall guy looking at our resources today we couldn't move something that big Baalbek, in particular is a very good example. That has the trilophon. Those are the largest stones in the world ever used for construction. They're so large we don't even know their actual weight. Now those stones were somehow quarried, moved five miles, lifted 25, 30 feet in the air, and placed together so closely that you can't fit a razor
2: blade or a piece of paper in between them. We have no idea how they did it. We don't have a crane in the world that can lift weights anywhere near what those things are.
1: But if we let the scriptures speak for us, I believe this solves the problem. Amos 2.9. God describes the Amorites. Yet I destroyed the Amorite before them, whose height was like the height of the cedar trees. Like the height of the cedars. And he was strong as the oaks. Yet I destroyed his root from above and his roots from beneath. Cedar trees start at 35 feet and go up to 150 feet. The cedars of Lebanon, we're in Baalbek, Lebanon, <laughs> where they're known for their cedar trees. Amos describes... The giants, the Amorites. So I scaled Arnold Schwarzenegger up to a 35 foot person, 36 footer, and there's what you got. you imagine two guys like Arnold, strong as the Oaks, right? Now that's pretty easy to see how that rock was moved. <laughs> hey Arnold, stop flexing, get over here and give me a hand. <laughs> stop showing off for the camera. I need some help here. <laughs> that totally explains the megalithic structures all around the world. Let the scripture speak for itself. It tells you there were giants in the earth in those days. And also after that. That being before the flood, yes, and also after the flood as well. Just not by multiple incursions. (laughs) Josephus, historian, also describes giants. They were, till then, left the race of giants who had bodies so large and countenances so entirely different from other men that they were surprising to the sight and terrible to the hearing. These were horrific creatures. Josephus writes about these as a historian in the first century. And he actually says that the bones of these men are still on open display at his in his day. So apparently they had a little museum of the conquered giants that the Israelites wiped out. Here's you know, here's here's the bones of the giants right here for everybody to see. All post-flood giants in the Bible are referred to as offspring of other giants found in the lineage of Canaan, Mizraim, Cush and possibly Japheth. And I put in parentheses there Gog and Magog. I can't confirm this from scripture. I don't have scriptural confirmation for this. However, historically speaking, there's a lot of evidence that uh, Gog and Magog were giants. In fact, every year they have what's called the Lord Mayor Parade in the UK, where they march these two huge giants called Gog and Magog through the cities. Two big giants. I stood on the Great Wall of China in 2006 come to find out that the original name for the Great Wall of China was the Ramparts of Magog. And so when you stand on this massive wall, I mean, this thing's huge and it goes on forever. That's not just to keep out Joe Blow's six-footer out. Okay. It makes sense that they may have been trying to keep out a whole bunch of, you
0: know, 35-footers maybe. Like, or whatever. Uh, so, <laughs> thanks for watching. And I'll, I'll finish this tomorrow. I've got to get my cats and food. Thanks for watching. So tomorrow I'm going to finish this and then I'm also going to see if I can find an answer on the Archons. I don't know if I'm just really confused or if, well, yeah, I know I'm really confused, but I don't understand how... I once knew, and now I don't, so anyway, thanks for listening, bye-bye.